Are you ready to begin your journey out of the realm of just theories and into a world of excitement and experience that only comes with braving the unknown? Join us as we speak to entrepreneurs who have faced the challenges of successfully creating businesses at home as well as abroad. Whether it's arts, services, or tech, from Shanghai to Tokyo, Bangkok to Mumbai, we'll help you find your inspiration and turn it into action. Get ready for Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now welcome your host, Neville J. McKenzie. Laurie Underwood is an American professor, author, and consultant specializing in cross-cultural business communications. She has studied, worked, and lived in Shanghai since 2002. Together with Professor Juan Fernandez at Siebes, she co-authored China CEO in 2006, China Entrepreneur in 2009, and most recently China CEO 2 in 2020. The audiobook was released in June 2021. After around 10 years of work in corporate communications, most recently as Communications Director Asia-Pacific for Air Liquid, she got her doctorate finished in 2019 and switched to consulting and teaching. She is a senior consultant with Sina Associates, focusing on intercultural business communications and crisis communications. She teaches at several business schools, including NYU Shanghai, University of Aberdeen, Schema, and EM Lyon. Today, she speaks with us about realities of working in China post-COVID, working with China if you cannot travel there because of COVID, and more generally sharing advice from China CEOs on the challenges and opportunities of doing business with China today. So now, without further delay, let's begin. Um, okay. So, the first question, where, where did you grow up? Yes, that's always an interesting question. Uh, I actually grew up very far from Asia. I grew up in Alaska, and of course that's part of the U.S. in case, uh, <laughs> yeah. in case that's not clear. Uh, but not just Alaska, but northern Alaska, so a very um, remote and isolated uh, part of the world in my hometown, which is Barrow, Alaska. If you ever have to play Trivial Pursuit and you need to know the northernmost city in the US, that's Barrow, Alaska. So it's above the Arctic Circle, which means it's dark for three months, light for three months. Um, no trees are growing there. It's the extreme north. Uh -huh. Yeah, totally the opposite of the world from where I live now in Shanghai. <laughs> yeah. So um, talk us through the jobs that you've had um, since you left Barrow. Barrow. Yeah. Yes. Well, I left Barrow as a child. I studied uh, uh, in, in Oregon, so that was much more sort of civilized and, and actually getting close to Asia. Um, so I came to Asia as a, as a reporter, as a young you know, college graduate. Uh, I wanted to be a news reporter. That first um, stint in Asia was in Taiwan. Uh, I loved uh, working there. And then I came to, to Shanghai um, to study in 2002 at CEIBS, China Europe International Business School, got my MBA there. And that was a great launching pad to, to actually work in, in, in Shanghai. So I've stayed in Shanghai ever since, but I've recreated myself several times. So I started out, uh, you know, I was a news reporter before getting my MBA. I got my MBA so that I could sort of launch myself into corporate communications. Uh, which I did and worked for several big uh, companies. The most recent one was Air Liquide, which is a big industrial gas uh, and medical gas company. 
And after doing that for, for about 10 years, I switched again, got my PhD, and now I'm a professor of intercultural business communications. So China has allowed me to change my career, you know, at least three distinct times. And that's one of the reasons I have loved uh, working there. It's a place that you can kind of remake yourself quite efficiently, I think. So what has been yeah. the reasons for you to make those changes? Yeah, I think, well, I think in today's world, a lot of people are doing that. Uh, and, and COVID has become another reason, you know, an opportunity for people to change their careers, either by choice or by necessity. Um, but I think uh, each phase was great when I was doing it. So I really wanted to be a news reporter. It was wonderful when I was in my 20s. Um, that lifestyle wasn't great after I had kids, <laughs> you know, to be on call and to be on the harsh deadline. So going back to school, getting my MBA, and I really wanted to get some solid corporate experience. Uh, and then I, I did that. And now that my kids are, uh, you know, out of the house in doing their own studies uh, in the U.S., I'm a bit more free to pursue what I want to do now, which is teaching. So I think now I feel like I can be a good professor because I've had work experience. Um, so it came at the time I was ready to you know, do something else with my corporate experience. So yeah, each time has been sort of, I, I, I can tag it to my kids. <laughs> they were young, now they're, now they're out of the house. A good time to kind of refocus my career. So are they still in China? No, they're both in the U.S. Yeah, they're both in the U.S. Okay. So I'm an empty nester. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. So um, recent, well, this is the, the question that we had a little brief discussion on before. Uh, recently, it's becoming more, in my opinion, and some of the people I know, it's becoming more difficult to find people from Europe and the U.S. to voluntarily go and work in China. So although it's been a good experience, um, for people in the past and sort of a, a Korean maker. Um, what are your opinions on it? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I've been in China through the whole COVID period. Uh, and and what, I've, what I've seen during that period is just a lot of people I know who are, were working in China, uh, having, having been locked out during COVID and then, you know, really desperately trying to come back. So that's been the perspective, um, you know, that I have just from my from my network. Uh, so I'm I'm now a professor of intercultural business communications at a number of different schools, uh, including NYU International Business School, Suzhou, uh, University of Aberdeen, Schema, Kedge. I've been teaching for a lot of different schools, and one of the reasons uh, why I've had more teaching opportunities lately as a visiting professor is that so many of the regular professors have had difficulty coming back to China because of COVID. So my perspective has been a bit different in just knowing so many people really trying to, to, to get back here. Um, so yeah, that, that's sort of been my reality. But, you know, it probably looks different from Singapore <laughs> or from your, your network of, uh, of friends and colleagues. Yep. Okay. So I, I left uh, China in 2016 and I miss it. Um, what I missed was like the speed of change and the freedom, as you mentioned before, to do new things, to reinvent yourself. So what else do you enjoy about being in China? Yeah, I think speed of change is definitely one of the aspects that makes life here so exciting. Uh, 
if I can pull in my book a little bit, um, the 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 book that I've just recently finished, China CEO Two, is interviews with uh, with people holding the title of China CEO at twenty five multinational companies, and I think what is really interesting about talking to those twenty five CEOs who all come from different, you know, their Coca Cola, L'Oreal, Microsoft, sometimes totally different fields, is that over and over again they mentioned what is challenging but also exciting about China is the speed of change, and I definitely feel that as well. So just a couple of examples that you probably recognize since you spent so much time here yourself. But you know, when I came here, when I came to Shanghai in 2002, the metro the metro system had two lines, line one and line two.、Uh, now it has more than 20 lines. So you know, in 20 years, it's basically like added a new line every every year.、Uh, you know that 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 speed of change is just huge. And you know, five years ago we didn't have high speed trains. Now we do.、Um, and and I think the biggest change is the cashless society. This may have happened basically since you left, but five or six years ago we were still using cash in China, and now we're not using cash at all ever. So everything is purchased on your mobile phone. So this kind of thing makes it, as a professor, super interesting because China is a different China every year. <laughs> so yeah, it's never never boring. So have you lived anywhere else apart from China? You know, my whole—well, I grew up in in, in the U.S. as as you know. Then my first experience into into Greater China was Taiwan,、uh, and then since 2002, I've been basically in Shanghai. So yeah, it's always been Greater China.、Um, yeah, and it's been—I've I've never thought about leaving because, you know, like I said, I changed my career several times, and Shanghai has frankly always been the best place to be、uh, for. Every different for you know first as a student, then as a corporate communications, and now as a professor. So、uh, you mentioned you were a professor of、uh, culture, intercultural business communications. Intercultural <laughs> business communication. That's almost as difficult as the topic I teach.、Um, What's but, that?、Uh, it's creative industries entrepreneurship. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mouthful as well. Yeah. Um, so when you hear the word culture mentioned, what do you think about? Because I think for me it's very important because you know growing up in the UK, living in China, and now living in Singapore, it has very different meanings for me. So what does it mean to you? Yeah, I think you know because I'm I'm teaching it. Probably I, I've developed a sort of、um, technical or academic view of culture. Chinese culture is so fascinating, and in all of my classes. Most of the time, I'm contrasting Chinese culture with the culture of either the place the students want to go to work, like my NYU students in China. They want to go to, they want to study at NYU Shanghai.、Uh, sorry, they want to study at NYU New York. So I contrast Chinese and American culture, or my French students. You know, it's Chinese and French culture.、Um, but Chinese culture is so interesting because it's a Very distinct, you know. It's you can't just lump it into sort of generic Asian culture.、Uh, I'll give you an example. Chinese culture.、Uh, one of the best kind of barometers of culture is Hofstede's cultural dimensions, which anybody who's interested in culture can can look up this fantastic website called Hofstede's Insights, and you can use that website to make a comparison between any two countries, and it gives you a sort of graphic depiction of the differences, and.、Uh, 
when you look at China, it's really different from other Asian cultures uh, on those dimensions. So just as one example, Chinese uh, culture is quite hierarchical, which is normal for most Asian cultures. So, you know, that means you need to, when you work here, you need to be respectful of people based on their title and age and things like that, more so than in the West. But on the other hand, China is very um, open to risk. So that's very different from other Asian cultures like Japan. So, you know, it's a fascinating place because it's such an interesting mix and it, it takes time to, to get to know uh, Chinese culture. But once you understand it, um, it really helps to communicate. There's so many mistakes that people make in communications that you, we don't even know they're based on culture uh, until we realize that we're not communicating well, misunderstandings are happening, business negotiations are breaking down, things like that. That's what I think I really love about teaching this class. I try to help people avoid big, embarrassing and potentially you know, disastrous mistakes <laughs> when they do business communication. So what would you say is the most important thing you've learned about living and working and teaching uh, about culture? I think, you know, I just have a more deep respect for the importance of culture and, and how it can um, either be a glue that glues people together or, you know, be a sort of toxic chemical that pushes people apart. Um, so, you know, it's really worthwhile to take the time to understand a different culture before you just arrive and start trying to do business. I think Americans tend to be very, um, you know, results oriented, short term, and we tend to be, you know, think that we can just be charming and nice and, and, and get the job done without putting a lot of time into learning about the different culture. But I think that's a mistake. <laughs> and uh, certainly, that was a message um, from the CEOs I interviewed. Uh, all of them who were not Chinese said they have to spend time learning about Chinese culture. It's just not going to work if they try to, you know, come in and plow through acting as a, an informed American. Okay. So you mentioned before that your book is called uh, China CEO 2. Uh, why is that? Yes, that, that's a good question. Uh, that's because there is a China CEO original book uh, with just the title China CEO. That came about um, when I was an MBA student and one of my professors, Juan Antonio Fernandez, he's a professor at CEIBS, uh, he had the idea for a book project and so we, we worked on that original book together. And then we did an update in, in, 2000, uh, in 2020. So the idea for both books is to interview people with the name card CEO of China for big multinational companies uh, like Coca-Cola, uh, Microsoft, L'Oreal, Tata, Sony, uh, all different companies, but the top, the top man or woman there. And um, for China CEO 2, we went back to some of the same companies, um, 25 companies in total, and interviewed the, same, the people in the same position. All of them were different except one. And um, yeah, and, and, and a very interesting thing between the first group of CEOs we interviewed and the second one is that they changed a lot demographically. So uh, in the second group, more women. In fact, there were no women in the first group of CEOs we interviewed. So as a woman, I'm very happy to say it went, the number of women went from zero to four. So that's a you know, movement in the right direction, I think. And in the first group, they were all not Chinese. 
uh, and in the second group, eight out of the 25 were Chinese. So those two trends, I think, are quite, uh, quite, quite interesting. And the third big change is that among the foreigners who were CEOs in the second group, more of them are younger, uh, kind of in the middle of their career, not at the end of their career. And they also spent more time in China. So the, uh, the first group, they kind of were like experts in their field, a long time in the company, but flew into China, you know, for not that long before taking the CEO role. Whereas the second group, they kind of worked their way up to the CEO role in China. So, yeah, a lot of changes uh, that, I, that I felt were really interesting. Do, do those people, they choose to become CEOs in China? Or um, so you mentioned that they were sent from their home country to China. The yeah. second group in CEO2, they moved to China and then became CEOs. So yeah, is that I, a conscious choice? I think, yeah, I think it, that's a good question. You you have some insight into, I think, a change in the mindset. To me, it seemed like uh, from talking to the second group of CEOs, they really had a deeper commitment to China. They really wanted to come to China and they spent time. Most of them came in a different role and then you know, worked their way up to the China CEO role. Uh, a lot more of them spoke good Chinese than the first group. So just a mindset of, you know, more of a commitment to being in China, understanding China. And also a super interesting difference was that with the second group, many of them said that they had ambitions to go on to really top global, global roles in the company. And they said that being posted in China as the CEO was a very important um, stepping stone to those global roles. In other words, you couldn't become in the really top executive group without spending some time in a in an important role in China. Uh, so the just the whole importance of China seemed to be uh, much higher in 2020 than it was in 2006. So yeah, I found that really um, inspiring for any of us working with China, working in China. It just means that MNCs, multinational companies, recognize the importance of China even more now than they did uh, in 2006. Did they say why um, China was such an important? I mean, we know it's a big economy, but why is why do they consider it important? Yeah, I think um, I think like you mentioned, the speed of change, uh, and something else really different between 2006 and 2020 is China's digital transformation. China was not a digital leader in the world in in 2006, and now you know it really is. Um, like I mentioned, it's a totally cashless society, one of the first, certainly the first giant economies that's totally cashless. Um, and so the the digital transformation, the rise of China China's own digital players like Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, uh, Douyin, TikTok, all of these companies that are now you know really important globally. They didn't. They weren't, you know, household names uh, in 2006. And of course, the third reason is, you know, Chinese consumers have. It's a huge population, and now they have a lot of money, <laughs> and uh, and they're spending it. So, you know, from the consumer point of view, China is just, you know, much more important even than it was in 2006. And I've read and seen and heard comments that. CEOs have to have a certain type of personality and that um, in some cases they almost have to be uh, psychopathic. Um, 
does does a Chinese CEO have a certain type of personality? I think one thing I, I've realized because you know among the twenty five people that I interviewed, they were very different. You know, I, I think um, before I did either of the books, I would have thought that all CEOs need to be, you know, really charismatic, super great speakers. And I would say there's a variety, you know, in, in the CEOs that I interviewed. Not all of them were fantastic orators and, you know, super inspiring uh, motivational speakers. But I, I would say that for the foreign CEOs, um, the things that they mentioned were actually a bit surprising. Being humble was a, a theme that came through again and again with the CEOs, the foreign CEOs. Basically, you can't, you know, lead a big operation in China without being uh, being humble, then, you know, respecting Chinese culture, learning about face and guanxi, those things, they're kind of cliches, but they still matter a lot in China. Um, Chinese language skills, commitment to China. And I think the, the last one that's maybe the most tricky that CEOs uh, explained to me is they have to be both flexible and firm. So and that takes like a judgment call. When do I bend and adapt to China? And when do I say, no, this is a core, you know, procedure in our company and we don't change that. So all of them mentioned this combination of, you know, not being too rigid, but, but knowing, using your judgment to know when I need to adapt and when I need to stick to the principles internationally for my company. So is that something they learn along the way? Or is that something that they're born with I think that one the difference between when to be flexible and when to when to not be flexible probably they they learn along the way uh, although you know they also mentioned that you have to be super clear about ethics and standards and you know those parts that can't be changed uh, for the for the company procedures but then also have the um, good relationship with headquarters to come back and say, look, this principle that we really want to instill worldwide, it just doesn't work in China. To also, you know, understand China well enough to say sometimes we have to change uh, to match the market here. Yeah, bringing that up with the headquarters. And the recently, um, because of the, situ the worldwide situation, travel has been restricted. And the number of sort of headquarter visits to China um, has been reduced. So have you noticed or have you heard about uh, the changes that this is bringing about within um, the, ch the China structure and how it affects CEOs? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the pieces of advice that was in the book, which totally doesn't work <laughs> because the book came out right after COVID started, uh, was, you know, to bring your headquarters to China more often there was lots of great advice about people, you know, having a kind of intensive China week for their top headquarters, let them come here and use the phone to pay for everything and ride the metro. And of course, none of that could actually happen when the book came out. So this has been one of the areas where companies really have, you know, struggled since COVID. Uh, how can, because China's complicated, chaotic, changing fast, how can you make your corporate headquarters understand that? since they can't come anymore. Uh, so so this has been the area where I've done actually quite a few consulting calls and tried to advise uh, companies how to cope with this. I think the only way to do it is to try to 
communicate like we're doing right now by <laughs> electronically, but to do that in a in a smart way, uh, maybe smaller, very interactive groups rather than a big meeting where you know there's 30 people on the call and most of them are screen off, not not really there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, it's been a challenge for everybody. They have to try to communicate more um, frequently with smaller audiences and and bring them bring China to them since they can't come. So, I've been advising people. You know, if you want to explain something going on with your with your consumers, go out and make videotapes and show people. You know what's actually going on in China, so they can try to feel it, even though they can't come to visit. But yeah, you, you hit on it. It's a big challenge right now for so many companies. So, have you ever met um, a CEO or a potential CEO that just you thought isn't going to make it? Uh, and have you been right? <laughs> <laughs> no uh, names. I ha- yeah, I've, I've definitely met people who are not following the advice in the book in terms of being humble, trying to understand Chinese culture. And another big piece of advice for non-Chinese coming here is to break out of your comfort zone. Don't stay in the expat circles. Try to make real friends in China. Uh, and, and that means, you know, not just with your team either. Um, you know, so, so the ones that have made it have really made an effort either to learn the language or maybe to do some study in China is a great way to meet Chinese or one, one, uh, one one CEO, I'm sure he he would be okay with me mentioning this. Uh, the the head of uh, Coca Cola is an American, uh, and he doesn't have time to really learn Chinese, and he certainly can't go back for his EMBA. But he said he what he does is he joined um, wine tastings, uh, where there are Chinese going there. They tend to speak some English, and he's been able to make friends that way, and also join some. And he he was very proud to show me that he had like over a thousand Chinese friends on his WeChat, you know? So um, making an effort like that, just being humble and, 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 and reaching out and trying to break out of your comfort zone are the tricks to succeeding. And not doing those things are kind of a surefire recipe for at least not enjoying your time in China and probably not adapting that well. That seems to be like the advice I used to give teachers just coming into China. Um, so it seems that it, at all levels, it's it's very similar. I used to tell them that it, no one's going to come to you and say, can I be your friend? So you have to go out and make friends. You have to go out consciously and deliberately to make friends. So even at the CEO level, it, it's, a, it's a factor that has, you know, that they have to consider that um, they're not going to meet people. They can become very isolated, which can be very lonely. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and the problem with isolation is you might get a warped view of, of of your job and what actually needs to be done. So, you know, traveling, uh, going around China, not staying in the big cities, not staying in your with your team constantly, uh, trying to get to know people outside of that has been, uh, you know, the ways people break out and and actually succeed in China, as you said. So you recently, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you were traveling. So you've just mentioned get out and travel. How often do you travel around China? 
Well, yeah, of course we do have some COVID restrictions, yeah. but as soon as long as those are not in, in, in practice, that's of course one of the beauties of being a professor. You're on a semester calendar and you can you can normally travel around uh, during the winter break and the summer break. So yeah, I, I, one of the most wonderful things um, about my time in China has been traveling, seeing different areas uh, of China, especially like Yunnan, Sichuan, the more wild um, parts of China. Uh, it's a fascinating place with so many different aspects and and what you realize is also one of the things that um, was brought up in, in the book that makes China challenging but also interesting is that it's not just one country, it's many different um, areas that each are at different economic, uh, different periods of economic development. Um, they have different cultures, different histories, uh, consumers have different tastes. So getting out and traveling is a great way to see that firsthand. Um, while life life is really different, say, in Tibetan Yunnan versus Shanghai, Beijing. So, yeah, if I just advise anybody who's in China to get out and see the different aspects of it. So have you been to the north of China? Uh, I've been to Beijing, uh, and we went to Harbin, Harbin last year. Yeah. 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 Yes, we went skiing in Harbin. Yeah. Lovely, <laughs> I've super been, cold. I've done the same, yeah, yeah. We went in the um, the winter. It was, I think, it was just around Christmas. Um, again, when I was teaching, uh, we had a, a winter break, and we went up to Harbin. And I have never been so cold. But for you, coming from Alaska, it was probably a reminder of home. It was a reminder of home, but it was a reminder that I didn't have the right, you know, clothes anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's 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 extreme. But the Harbin uh, ice show fantastic yeah. i mean really really impressive um and so many tourist spots in china are really impressive now that really china has made a huge effort to create amazing places to visit hybrid uh, harbin ice show is definitely one of them yeah i've been there yeah um so you you're a professor and a consultant so how do you manage those two roles yeah, I think um, I love doing both. Uh, I'm a business school professor, so and in my co consulting work, it's you know also talking with businesses, helping them to be better at their intercultural communications, mostly. Uh, also do crisis management, so it's all communications related. And what I find that's really lovely is that my students want to know what what companies are thinking about and what their mindset is. And companies want to know what Chinese young people are thinking about and what their mindset is. So I love being, uh, you know, having a foot in both worlds and helping both groups of people. So for my students, I have some undergraduates who are in their 20s. I have the MBA students in their 30s and I have executives in their 40s and even 50s. So um, it's also a great chance for me to see the generational differences in China today, which, um, you know, every country has generally generational differences, but in China it can be really extreme. Um, the the life goals of people in, in China in their 40s and 50s versus the young 20s are really different. Um, and I, I can see that sort of firsthand when I do a case study, the same one with different age groups, I have a totally different reaction uh, between the generations. So that's fascinating. And then I can pull that back to my companies and try to tell them gives them some really concrete uh, evidence. So can you give me an example of that? 
and the listeners an example yeah you know for example uh i think the the the, the viewpoint and the um the kind of thinking about multinationals is really different among older and younger chinese so in general older chinese uh executives and professionals have quite a healthy respect for multinational companies would like to do business with them that could be why they're doing their executive mba um to be promoted within a uh multinational company or to do more business or to work abroad whereas the younger generation um tend to be much more flexible they may want to work for a multinational company but maybe not it would be an unfair generalization to say that they all look up to multinational companies and want a job there not not necessarily they may want to be an entrepreneur and open their own company or they may be a lot of them are also very excited about uh Chinese digital Chinese companies um there's a kind of very strong nationalistic pride about Alibaba Tencent um Douyin uh all the the Chinese companies that have become famous recently um and then there's also people who don't want to do corporate work at all they want to be a key opinion leader and <laughs> have a you know really really a big following uh you know for their own opinions on social media So there's just a I think Chinese young people are a bit more similar to western young people in that their goals could be quite diverse and um and that they want to have a work life balance. This is quite different. The older generation tend to be super, you know, have a more traditional uh, my main focus is to work really hard and I don't I'm not thinking about my vac- vacation time. I'm just thinking about getting a promotion. So yeah, really different mindset. why do you think that that change has occurred uh i think it's you know part of the natural progression of a of a of a economy developing uh it's just that it's happened in china so much more rapidly because china has changed so fast um you know if you think about it the the older generation 40s and 50 year olds they uh you know the the the, the economy changed with them going through their career path so you know as they were building their career path china was uh becoming a more and more important trading partner in the world and they just kind of rode that wave and most of them grew up in a quite traditional um mindset which says you know my main role as a as a professional is to provide for my family so a lot of them had that mindset and you know the best thing they can do is just make more and more money for their family by working hard whereas the younger generation they tended to grow up in a very comfortable situation relatively speaking so they didn't have the same uh you know internal drive to make money they already the family was already pretty comfortable and i think that that fact just gave them more freedom and families and parents are telling more young people find what do what you love rather than get the best job possible so you know the families are evolving and the young people are just born into a different situation than their parents were yeah. um thinking about that uh, some of the students i taught they did come from very um cha- financially challenged backgrounds and that that has given them a certain amount of drive do you think the students maybe that you've met that are fairly comfortable do you think that they will um 
find it difficult to compete against, say, students coming from a background that's uh, less well off? And yeah, you- that that's an in, that's that that's a good question. I think. Well, one thing I would say generally is, and you probably felt this too, is that Chinese students tend to be super hardworking. I mean, I feel so lucky to start my um, teaching career in China. Compared to my home country in the U.S., <laughs> uh, students here really are, generally speaking, great. They work hard. They're ambitious. They want to succeed. Um, they learn fast, and they put the hard work in. So, you know, in general, young generation, old generation, um, the 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 drive to educate yourself is super strong. Still, a really strong part of Chinese culture. What is a little bit different is that I think younger generation are giving themselves more of a wide spectrum of where I might work. I might, like I said, be an entrepreneur. Not everybody is going to be a lawyer, a doctor, or a corporate um, executive. Um, and you're you're also right in that you know, in some cases, students who had a, who have a financial need, they may really be pushing hard for their success in order to help their whole family. There's still much, there's still a lot of connection between um, people and their family, which is even stronger in China than in in the West. So that um, young people, there's still this Confucian filial piety idea that, you know, children uh, need to make their parents proud and even take care of themselves, take care of them financially. Um, And that might be, that might not be so much of a drive for for those uh, Chinese students who are quite well off and don't have that, you know, that, that's kind of a, a issue that we all have in the West as well. Yes. <laughs> the more comfortable kids are, maybe they don't work as hard. Yeah, so kind of a new challenge that's definitely happening in some parts of the population in China as well. So how would you describe yourself? Would you describe yourself as an entrepreneur in with your consulting or would you describe yourself as a professor, or is it sort of a, a, a mixture of both? I think it's a mixture of both. I think, you know, what, what's lovely about China, at least my experience with the culture, is that the whole society is very accepting of people remaking themselves. So that's part of the atmosphere of speed and change in China, is that, you know, it's acceptable that Two years ago, I was corporate communication director Asia Pacific for Air the Kid. Then I got my um, dissertation done, and now I'm teaching. People don't really blink an eye at that. Uh, and there, it's also a culture where people change jobs quite quickly and even change uh, career focus. So uh, I finished my MBA in 2003, and last time I had a you know reunion with my with my classmates, uh, I found that a lot of them had not only changed uh, jobs many times since we all graduated, but some of them really totally changed job focus. And most of them are Chinese. Um, And everyone's quite accepting about that. So I think that's also part of the current situation in China. It's um, as the economy has grown, people have more flexibility and it's quite become quite normal for people to change career direction and focus in order, and I think more and more people are, once they become financially comfortable enough, they're doing what they love to do, not what they have to do for their families. This also, I think, is an interesting change in China. Okay, so 
Um, I think that's, well, that's 11.25. I think we, we haven't quite <laughs> gone a full hour. Um, but what would be, if you had a, a what would you be your final comment uh, about living and working in China, say as a CEO first, then as a professor, and then as um, a consultant? I'll give you three, a choice of three comments on each. Okay. All right. I think one thing I... I mean, I'm not a CEO, but I interviewed lots of CEOs. Yeah, that's another I think, question I wanted to ask you. Why aren't you a CEO? You know so much uh, about yes. what it takes. That's a, that's a good question. I think I'm a better CEO observer than I would be as a CEO. Uh, I think, you know, I've learned a lot from from talking to them, and I feel much happier just, you know, absorbing their advice and, and, and putting it out there and hope, hopefully helping people who want to you know, advance their career in China. So I love doing that. And uh, yeah, at this stage in my in my career, I love teaching and helping people to advance their career. Um, I think that's the best, you know, place for me to be. Um, but I think what is, what is a, a good message to remember is that China has even increased in its importance for lots of multinational companies than it, than it, uh, than it was a couple of years ago. And so, for any of you interested in working in China or with China, it's going to be time well spent and energy well spent. Um, China's, you know, going to continue being a super important economy in the in the coming years. Uh, I think there's no doubt that you know, working in and with China is going to continue to be super important. So to do that well, spend time learning the culture, and during the time of COVID, which is probably going to continue to interfere with travel. Um, we all have to reach out both ways. Those of us in China have to reach out and those of us outside have to reach in and try to connect, you know, in ways that we can help each other. So, you know, as a professor, I'm helping a lot of professor friends who are kind of stuck outside China by helping them do a one hour, you know, talk so that their students can talk to someone who's in China and, helping them to feel connected. I think that's going to be, you know, really important going forward. So, yeah, and and, and as a consultant, uh, I, I really love helping people to understand China better and um, to solve problems and issues because, like I said, China is different every single year I've been here. Almost 20 years. Next year will be um, the, my 20th year in China. It's been a different China. So it's been fascinating and... I love doing that. Um, so I hope I can just you know, continue to help people with their China issues. Okay. Thanks, Laurie. And Thank um, you, Neville. I hope we can have another conversation in the future. Uh, I think we will. Absolutely. Um, we, I think we've got quite a few things uh, in common. Um, we do. <laughs> yeah. I've, um, you know, I'm, uh, I've been a professor, lecturer, um, I'm now, I've just started my own business uh, in creative industries entrepreneurship. Oh, I've just started my own business based on creative industries entrepreneurship uh, as a sort of a webinar um, consultant or producing webinars. So, um, yeah, and hopefully we can get you involved in that as well. I would love to. Yeah. I would love to. All right. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Yeah, bye -bye. and you Talk too. To you Take later. care. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Bye. 
Thanks, Laurie, for the insights on what's been happening in China. If you'd like to know more from Laurie, you can contact her on LinkedIn or visit asiabizstories.com to find the links. This brings us to the end of this episode of Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now we need you to hit the subscribe button and head over to asiabizstories.com for more great information on how to take your inspiration and turn it into action. Thanks again, and we look forward to having you join us next time on Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Oh, 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 oh,